If you'll find your place with me today in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're in chapter 3 of our study, and we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'm wondering how many of you, since we began this study two or three weeks ago, have read through the book. Uh, you, as a part of uh, you know, this sermon series that we set in motion, you have read through the book. Any of you? We've got a few. Yeah, we've got several across the room. I hope you'll keep reading it. it the, the more you read it, the, the more it begins to, to, to make sense. You, know, you get an enlightenment about the book, and I trust that, um, that you'll continue to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful music that we've been listening to, the music that glorifies and honors you, and we're glad to have the quartet back singing, the musicians playing, and Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you in song. We, we thank you, Lord, for our young people and the hard work they put in this past week in uh, loving on and reaching out to uh, the community down on 8th Avenue. Lord, we're thankful for the facility that you provided us to be able to do that this year. Uh, we're grateful for all the hard work that went into it, and we pray that you will bless those young people and all of those uh, leaders uh, for uh, their love uh, for reaching people and their love for you. Now, Lord, we turn our attention to your word today. We continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as someone said to me recently, it's a hard book to understand, and in some ways it is. But, Lord, when we understand it, the truth that it reveals to our hearts is invaluable. So, Lord, help us to take the time to try to understand what Solomon is saying as he writes these words. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, especially verses 1 to 8, are a section of Scripture that are more familiar to people, even if they haven't been in church very much, simply because some of these phrases out of the first eight verses are used in society. For instance, you hear people talk about there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. They might not fully understand all that Solomon is saying when he gives that phrase, but they'll use that phrase because it makes sense to them. There's a time to be born or a time to die. Or, you know, they might pick out one of the phrases where it says there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And, you know, you're looking at your children and say, you know, there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. They don't really know where that came from. They don't really know necessarily what passage of Scripture, you know, that comes out of, but they know it makes sense, and so they, they quote it. It's, it's a section of Ecclesiastes that I think is beautiful. It's poetic, especially these first eight verses are poetic. They have a rhythm to them, and as you read them, you begin to feel what he's trying to communicate and what he's trying to help us to understand about life. Solomon wrote these words. He was a man who was a practical atheist. He wasn't an atheist, but he was a practical atheist. That is, he was living with his heart turned away from God. He was living as if there was no God. He's living in sin. He had wealth. He had wisdom. Uh, he had women. He had all of his works that he had done. He had had all of his accomplishments, and yet his heart had been turned away from God. And living in that fashion, he comes to a conclusion in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he journals out his thoughts. And as he journals out his thoughts, you begin to see the emptiness of living without God. You begin to see the futility of living as if there is no God, as if you've got to figure out life on your own. And if you can't figure out, it on, figure out life on your own, then just too bad. It's, you know, it's, it's upsetting and it's, it's unfortunate, but you, you're, you know, that's just the situation you find yourself in. And that's where Solomon is, trying to figure out life on his own. He's looking at life from a horizontal perspective, from a humanistic, human perspective. He has no vertical spec perspective at this moment. He's not looking at it as God tells us to look at life. He's only seeing it uh, from what he can see immediately around him and the assessments that he can make about that life. And the result is that that kind of living, living as if there is no God, living as if 
God doesn't matter inevitably leads you onto a dead-end street. And Solomon says it over and over in this book. You know, it's chasing after the wind. It's, it's like grasping for the wind, and you can never get it in your fist. You can't hold on to it. Life just keeps escaping you. It, it's, it seems to be a waste of time sometimes. It's vanity, he says over and over, some 40-plus times. It's vanity. It's vanity. It's there, and then it's gone. Well, as he's telling you these things about living life apart from God as a practical atheist, as if there is no God, periodically Solomon sort of rises to the surface and he begins to give some insight that's phenomenal. He, he has been doing this deep dive into life and he's discovered that in life there's a lot of things he doesn't understand, that he doesn't like, that are dead in streets but then suddenly it's as if he regains his balance for a moment, begins to see differently for a moment. And when he does, he gives to us insights, beautiful insights about life that come out of his experience. You, you have done that in your life, haven't you? You've gone through something in your life and you experienced something in your life that was unpleasant or difficult or hard to understand and you learned through it, you learned lessons through it, and then what did you do? You sat down maybe with your children or with your grandchildren or with members of your family or a friend who's facing some struggle in life, and you shared what you learned. Well, thus far, Solomon has been doing a deep dive into life, and it hadn't been pleasant. He's found it to be a dead end, one dead end after another. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill. But suddenly, he surfaces for a few moments. And he's going to give us some insight that's absolutely incredible. These first eight verses not only are fairly well known, at least some of them fairly well known amongst the population. Do you realize in the 1960s, the middle 1960s, that there was a musical group called the Birds that popularized the words of, of, uh, of Solomon here in chapter 3. It was called time, 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 and they would sing that over and over, and they broke up the, these beautiful phrases from verse 2 to verse 8, and they turned it into a song. Now, understand that, it, it, that for the most part, they quoted these, uh, these opposites, these polar opposites correctly, but when they got to the end of the song, they added one last phrase that said, a time for peace, I swear it's not too late. They were a pop rock group, they were a part of the 60s, and they were opposed to the Vietnam War. And it became a song of opposition to the Vietnam War. But they popularized these phrases. And I think as we read through them here in just a moment and we stop and we consider some of them, that you'll see the beauty of these phrases. You'll understand why they were popular for a song, why they're popular for people who read them and have heard some of them. He begins in chapter 3, verse 1, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And then he begins by taking polar opposites to demonstrate something to you. Verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. Can we just stop there for a moment? Everybody recognizes that, don't they? I mean, you're in this world because there was a time to be born. And there is yet to be a time to die for all of us that are in this room, those of us that are watching this service. We have both a birth certificate and one day we will have a death certificate. Is that not correct? Um, it, it's one of those things that's the reality, that's the rhythm of life. It's a part of the rhythm of life. You know, you start out as an infant child and you are cared for by your parents and then you are taking care of your parents at the other end of life. You realize that it's not that far from the maternity ward to the ICU ward. And, and he's simply reminding us that there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a rhythm to life, there's a reality to life that all of us have to face. He moves along, there's a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. Obviously, you don't plant in the middle of winter, at least not if you intend to harvest something. 
there's the right time to go out and you plow up the, the fields, you plow up the ground, and you place the seed in the ground, and you water the seed, and you cultivate the seed, and you make sure that it's cared for so that it can grow up, and then you're watching it as, as it's growing up, and, there, and then there comes the moment when it's time to, to, to pluck or to harvest what has been planted. Uh, my mother had a garden. Uh, I don't know much about gardening, but she liked to raise, and I think some of it was because of saving money as well as being the healthy aspect of it. She liked to have a garden, and uh, you know, she raised green beans and corn and okra and squash and, and all of those things. And I can remember as a boy growing up, uh, sometimes she would say, okay, Davey, you're going with me out. We're going to weed the garden. Oh, man, that was the most miserable time of my life. You had to go out and weed the garden. You know, can't we do anything else? Can't Cheryl or Diane do that? Why does it have to be me, you know? Well, there's a time to plan, and there's a time to pluck up a harvest what is planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. We automatically think of physical life when we think about killing. And there is a time to kill. The Bible talks about capital punishment. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. But think beyond just physical life. I mean, we kill cancer cells, and we kill infections, and we kill diseases, right? We take things in order to kill these things, but as there is a time to kill, there's a time to heal, and we love the time to heal, don't we? I love when I get to visit somebody who's had some kind of terrible situation in life, some illness in life, and they've killed the illness. They've destroyed it in their bodies, and suddenly they find themselves getting strong again and getting healthy again. He says there's a time to break down and a time to build up. I was thinking about that phrase over the years and all the facilities that we have built and all the things we've done. We've bought about 10 houses from all the way over uh, at the, well, I shouldn't say the old facility, the Family Life Building, to where we are today and across the street. We, we bought about 10 or 11 houses through all of those years, and some of them, it was the time to tear them down and get rid of them. They weren't needed anymore. They were in the way. Some of them, it was time to leave them standing, and they're still standing to this day. You know, there's the time to build there's a time to tear down. He goes on, there's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. You know, you have to know that rhythm of life, don't you? There's a time to cry with people. There's a time for you to cry. I wish we'd stop telling, especially young boys, young men, that this, uh, this is a shameful thing for them to cry. Crying is a reality. Tears are real. There are moments of great heartbreak in grief, but aren't we thankful for the moments of laughter? Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22, that a merry heart does good like a medicine. I love people that can tell something that's funny, who know what it means to laugh and to enjoy laughing in life. He says there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. Clearly, Solomon wasn't a Baptist. <laughs> there's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance. In verse 5, he says, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. This is a little more difficult, but it seems as if what he's saying is that sometimes you put stones in a field in order to impede the progress of a, of a, of a, a gathering enemy coming towards you to make it difficult for them to get through the field because of the rocks that are placed. And other times you remove the rocks to make it easy to traverse across that field. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I love to hug my wife in the morning. Don't you do that. I mean, you hug your wife, just not my wife, right? There's a time to embrace and to hug your wife and, and kiss her and tell her you love her or your husband and kiss him and tell him that you love him. But you got to go to work at some point, right? You know, honey, I, I love you, but i got to let go. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to gain and a time to lose. I'm in the gaining years. I'm talking about with weight and privileges and rights and responsibilities and possessions. There's a time for gaining these things and there's a time for losing those things. There's a time to keep and there's a time to throw away. This is for all uh, of uh, you uh, estate sale people. 
all of you yard sale people. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. I don't quite understand why when we were having yard sales in our neighborhood, we always ended up buying our neighbor's junk <laughs> and selling them ours. But there's a time to keep. There's a time to throw away. There's a time to tear and a time to sow. Probably has reference to when you're grieving or when you're in sorrow, you tear your clothes to show the depth of your mourning. But then there's the time to stop the mourning and to repair the clothes, to sew the clothes so that you can wear them. There's a time to keep silence and there's a time to speak. How true is that? Oh, if we would learn that in our lives. You know, there's a time to say something to your boss and there's a time to just keep your mouth shut. Right? There's a time to do those things. There's a time to love and a time to hate. We don't like that word, but you realize that you can't be a good Christian if you don't also have a hate life. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Paul wrote in the book of Romans, we should abhor that which is evil. Abhor is the word for hate. We should hate what is evil. There's a time for hate and there's a time for love. And then he said there's a time for war and a time of peace. And we thank the Lord for the times of peace, but sometimes there are times of war. Now, what is Solomon doing here? Giving these polar opposites these things that are completely different to one another. This is a figure of speech. They're called in today's language a mirrorism. M-E-R-I-S-M, a mirrorism. It's to take two opposites to say, not only do I mean the two opposites, but I mean everything that's in between these two opposites. It's like saying, you know, we've searched high and low. What do we mean? We've searched everywhere. Or we say it's from A to Z. What, what are we saying? We're saying it's A and Z and anything in between A and Z. When you think about what the scripture says about Jesus, he is the alpha and the omega. The first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, zeta, eta, theta, yoda. Right on through alpha and omega. He's saying Jesus is the first and the last and everything in between. So that when Solomon writes these words of time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck what's planted, and right on through, showing these polar opposites. He's using a figure of speech to say this. Life is full of a lot of changes. And everything between these two things, not just these two things, but everything between these two things is covered by what he says. And in essence, what he's trying to make sure that we understand is that God is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. If you're writing down notes, here's your first lesson to be learned. God is sovereign over all the times of our lives. He is sovereign over all the times of our lives. If I could just get myself to believe that, if I can just get you to believe that. I think about my atheist friends who don't believe in God at all. They don't believe there even is a God. Do you realize how fatalistic their lives are? They move from nothingness to nothingness. There is no purpose and there is no reason. There is no one who's ever going to give an understanding to anything that's happening in life, no matter what it is, good or bad. Nobody that'll ever explain it. It's just a matter of chance. It's just a matter of fate. There is no real explanation. And that's not how Solomon looked at life. Solomon looked at life and he took these extremes, the, these polar opposites to one another to indicate those two opposites plus anything and everything that goes between to say to all of us that God is in control. Do you realize there's comfort in knowing that God's providence watches over everything? Vance Havner was a preacher of the 20th century. By the way, that wasn't that long ago, you know? He died in 1986 
Vance Havner used to say, God writes over some of our days, we'll explain later. Right? God writes over some of our days, we'll explain later. Do you understand that God is sovereign? Whether you understand or not, whether you like everything he does or not, God is sovereign over everything. Nothing comes into our lives apart from the providence of the Almighty God. He either sends it or he allows it, but nothing occurs apart from his watch care and his supervision of it. God knows everything, even if we can't understand it. Can I tell you that it's not possible for us to understand or to know everything there is to know about the providence or the sovereignty of God? And God trying to explain it, uh, the mechanics of his providential oversight of our lives is sort of like you trying to explain to a flea the work that you do. You know the best thing for a flea? Just get on a dog and do what a flea does. And the best thing for us to do is just to recognize we can't fully understand the sovereignty and the providence of God, but there is nothing that happens in our lives outside of his providence and outside of his sovereignty. Even when it's unpleasant and he has to say, we'll explain later. Aren't you thankful that we have a God who says to us, one day you'll understand One day you'll see it differently. One day it'll make sense. One day you'll have an understanding that you do not have in this moment. Your life is not a matter of chance and happenstance. If it's come to you, it's come through the hands of God. Think of Job. Nobody was more righteous than Job. He was a godly man. He loved his family. He wanted nothing more than that his family follow God as he followed God. You know, we read the book of Job and we read about the experiences of Job and it's something that we're grateful to have because we get to see what was going on behind the scenes. Job didn't have that perspective. We're reading the book after the fact when it's being explained what was happening in Job's life. That Satan had come before God and said, you know the reason why Job serves you is because you're so good to him and you bless him in so many wonderful ways. But you take away those blessings and you watch. Job will turn on you as quickly as you take those blessings away. Job had none of that knowledge. He had none of that understanding. He had no concept of what was going on behind the scenes. Here is a righteous man who is suffering. Can you imagine losing 10 children? He loses his health, and his own wife says, curse God and die. And then if you've got three or four friends, he actually had four, but the three most prominent ones that Job had, you need some new friends, right? I mean, they kept coming and saying, Job, this is your fault. You've done something. It's your fault. It's your fault. You know, we should stop speaking when we don't know. There's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent, right? I mean, they really didn't know what was going on. And now that we have the book of Job, we know what was going on behind the scenes. But nothing touched Job apart from the providence and the sovereignty of God. He could have stopped it at any moment. And he did put boundaries on it. When Solomon writes these words, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh. He's giving you these polar opposites, and he's saying to us in this figure of speech that God is in control of everything, everything in between. And the bottom line is, will you notice that at the end of verse 11, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Will you notice verse 14? I know that whatever God does, it will be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. Who's in control? God's in control. 
If I thought there was no one in control and I was just merely a matter, everything I'm facing, a matter of happenstance and a matter of fate, can you imagine how miserable it would be to live that way? And Job comes and he gives us these beautiful poetic words to remind us that God is sovereign over all the times of our lives. And if we don't understand them, he says, we'll explain later. But they're not a matter of chance. They're not a matter of fate. They all have a purpose. They're all a part of his plan. I, I, I know there's a lot of people who said to me, I sat down and witnessed to a man that I've been trying to lead to Christ for a long time. I've been witnessing to him for a long time. And the last time I witnessed to him, he said, well, I just don't like the way God runs the world. If there is a God, I don't like the way God runs the world. Well, you might not like the way God runs the world, but I like the fact of knowing that there is a God that's running the world even if I don't always understand why he's running the world the way he's running the world. And so God wants us to be reminded that he is sovereign over all of the times of our lives. There's a second lesson I want you to get from these opening eight verses, and that is the times of our lives are always subject to change. The times of our lives are always subject to change. He goes from birth to death, from planting to, to reaping or harvesting, from killing to healing, from uh, breaking down to building up, to weeping to laughing, from mourning to dancing, from gathering stones to casting stones out, and so forth. He, he takes these extremes and he's indicating everything in between is under the control of God, the sovereignty of God. Even if we don't fully understand it, he's watching over it all. Because he wants us to know he's sovereign, but he also wants us to know that there are changes that happen in our lives to the times of our lives. Maybe you've come to a place in your life where you're in a position where you don't really like where you are. Well, just wait. Just wait. God can change the times and the seasons of your life. Have you found that life has a rhythm to it? Have you found that life has a rhythm to it? <laughs> Have you found that life has a rhythm to it? Thank you. Whether you believe it or not. I mean, the sun gets up in the morning and the sun goes down in the evening, right? You get up in the morning and you go to work, you come home in the evening and you go to bed and rest. Your children are cared for by you, and then there comes a point where your children are caring for you. As my kids said, we're going to put you in the best nursing home your money can afford. <laughs> Somebody else told me that, and I thought, that's pretty good. There's a rhythm to life, right? There's a rhythm to life. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. All of these things, there is a time, but God can change those seasons. God is the one who moves those seasons. And learning to appreciate that is absolutely essential to being able to adapt to the world we live in, a world that is changing incredibly fast. I think about uh, some of the Old Testament characters when it comes to this. I think about Moses. Moses lived 120 years, and there was a season of his life when he, was in, when he was in Egypt, and he was learning at the hands of the Egyptians. He was becoming a mighty warrior at the hands of the Egyptians. When he saw, as a 40-year-old man, an Egyptian abusing one of his Hebrew brethren, he intervenes and he kills that man. He thinks the Hebrews are going to celebrate him. He thinks the Hebrew people are going to be glad for him, but instead... They begin asking things that disturb him. And for the next season of 40 years, where do we find Moses? We find him on what I like to say, the backside of the desert, tending his father-in-law's sheep. Not, not a very auspicious place for a man who was prepared to be a leader in the Egyptian school system. And then after those 40 years, 80 years total, God comes to him in a burning bush and it's time for another season of his life. And God says, now I've got you ready. I've got you right where I want you, humbled 
and ready to be used by me. And I want you to go lead those three million or so Jews out of the land of uh, Egypt. And I want you to take them to the promised land. And he thinks to himself, you know, wait a minute, God, surely you don't mean me. (laughs) You don't mean me. But ultimately, he becomes the great leader, Moses. But he had seasons in his life. Or think about, think about Joseph. Joseph, the beloved of his father, gave him a special coat that distinguished him from his other brothers. Parents, that's not a good thing to do. Not a wise thing to do. But gave him a coat to distinguish him from his other brothers. and They hated him and they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He's lied about by Potiphar's wife. He's put into prison. He's forgotten while he's there. About 14 years of his life, there's this season as a son in his father's family. There's this season of life when he's locked up, when he's imprisoned, when he's working for Potiphar and living in Egypt. But then God changes the season again, doesn't he? And He becomes the second in command over Egypt, and God was bringing him to a place so that he could save alive all of the people of Egypt, but save alive his own people, the Hebrew people. Or think about David. Samuel anoints him to be the next king, but you realize this shepherd boy who spent time out with the sheep, communing with God and fellowshipping with God and writing those incredible psalms, do 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 you realize that from the time that he was, uh, he was set apart to be the next king of Israel, that it's going to take some 10 or so years, a season of his life when he's being chased by Saul and Saul's trying to destroy him because the king, King Saul, is jealous of David, but then the seasons change and David becomes king and David becomes the standard for all Jewish kings, Right? Or think about Paul. Paul meets the Lord on the Damascus Road. His life is dramatically changed by the resurrected one. He begins to understand, he does understand, that the one that was prophesied, the coming Messiah, all of those prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And as soon as he's saved, he's going to spend about three years in preparation, and the seasons of his life changed. But then the seasons change again, and he becomes the great missionary to the Gentile people. What are you saying? I don't know what your season of life is right now. And it may seem pretty unpleasant and pretty miserable to you at this moment. But don't lose faith. Don't lose faith in these moments. These are the moments for you to stop and to recognize that God changes season. It may be that you're just about to have a change of season in your life. It's all under his sovereignty. It's all under his providence anyway. You can't change those seasons yourself. That's that's what he means in verse 9. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? It's like saying, are all my labors really worth it? He says, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. In other words, I can't change these seasons. I'm not the one who sets the time of birth or the one who sets the time of death. I'm not the one who does that. And my responsibility, it might seem as if it's useless because I'm operating under the providence and the sovereignty of the God of heaven. But the reality is that is my role to play. That is my place to keep doing and keep working and keep serving and keep moving and keep going and not giving up because at some point God may well choose in his sovereignty to change the season of our lives. And aren't we thankful that God does that? We're as thankful as the fact that it changes from spring to summer and summer to fall and fall to winter. And aren't you thankful that we get the privilege of seeing all those seasons? Aren't you thankful that we get the privilege of seeing all of those seasons? And aren't we grateful when those seasons change? I like winter when it comes on, but by the end of winter, I'm ready for spring. Give me the flowers. Give me the hay fever. Give me the sinus drainage. I'm ready for some change. And then 
I'm ready for summer, and then I'm ready for fall again, and the beauty of the leaves and all that the, uh, the beauty that you behold around you. You know, not only is God sovereign over all the times of our lives, but the times of our lives are always subject to change. When God is ready to change the season of your life, he'll change it. That doesn't mean that you don't, if you're dealing with an illness, you don't go to a doctor, you don't take your medications, or you don't do things to help yourself, but it means that until God changes that season, you have to accept that season. And as surely as there is a season, God does change seasons. There's a third thing I want you to see. God is sovereign over all the times of our lives. Number two, the times of our lives are always subject to change. And number three, through all the times of our lives, we should bring glory to God. Through all the times of our lives, we should bring glory to God. No matter whether it's one of those difficult times or whether it's one of those happy times, whether it's a matter of the time of mourning or it's the time of laughter, everything we do is to be lived out for the glory of God. Everything we do. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16 says, redeeming the time for the days are evil. What does he mean? You don't waste whatever season you're in to give glory and to give honor and to give praise to God. Look back again at verse 14. He says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing shall be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it that, here's the reason God operates in his sovereignty, that men should fear him. It's not a fear where you're trembling like when your parents caught you doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. Or the principal at school caught you doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. That's not the kind of fear he's talking about. He's talking about an awe for who God is. It's been a lot of years ago now, but um, when our children were still teenagers, we went and took our young people from the church, including our children and Mary and me and several other adults, and we went on a missions trip to Canada, Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Um, the purpose was to help this missionary. He had rented a storefront. It needed a lot of work. And so our responsibility was to get there and to help him to straighten this place up, paint and scrape things off the wall and off the floor and whatever we needed to do, and then to go out into the community and distribute flyers out into the community. And that was something that, that we thoroughly enjoyed doing. But as with every missions trip, we had a fun day. And one of those was to go down to Niagara Falls. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? We went down to Niagara Falls, and um, I mean, it's an incredible thing to behold. There's six million cubic feet of water that run over the falls every minute. They fall 170 feet into that basin. I mean, it's awe-inspiring when you see it at nighttime when the lights are you know, lit up from behind it and shining on it. It's awe-inspiring when you stop and you look at it. And Mary and I and our kids purchased tickets on the Maid of the Mist. You ever been on the Maid of the Mist? It's uh, sort of like taking your life in your hands. <laughs> if I didn't believe God was providential, it would have been stupid. And uh, you know, they give you, at least at that time, they gave you a, a plastic bag. It's a trash bag, and they cut the head place out for your head and for your arms to come out and they give you it's got a hood on it and you pull it up because they know when they get up close to that basin where all that water is pouring over that there's going to be a mist that's going to be blowing against you and you're going to get soaked if you don't have that plastic bag sort of like being in a trash bag you know have, have that plastic bag on and we went up right up to the edge and you're watching all of this water and you're standing there on that boat watching all of this unfold before you and you're struck with a sense of how small you are and how awesome this fall this this fall is this niagara falls is that's the kind of fear he's talking about, where you stop and you recognize, wow, I, I, I'm, I'm nothing in his sight. And, and I, I don't understand anything or everything that, that God is doing. And you're awestruck with the person of God. Listen, through all the times of our lives, we should bring, bring glory to God, shouldn't we? 
We should be giving thanks to God for everything that we have to endure in our lives. We should be giving thanks to God. God filled the world with good things for a reason. God wants us to give him thanks, and he wants, to give it, he wants us to give him praise for all of the things that he does. Let me quickly give you two others. God is sovereign over all the times of our lives. The times of our lives are always subject to change. Through all the times of our lives, we should bring glory to God. Number four, the times of our lives reveal that eternity has been placed in our hearts. Do you know what you long for when life turns upside down? You long for God, and you long for the answers that only God can give you. Right? You notice what he says in verse 11? He says, he has made everything beautiful. Please notice the next words. In its time. Remember what he said in verse 1? To everything there's a season, a time, a time for every purpose under heaven. And he makes everything beautiful in its time. Please don't misunderstand the word beautiful. It means that you come to a place where you understand the purpose of God. You come to a place where you accept the purpose and the plan of God in your life, even if it's uncomfortable and even if it's difficult, and you realize that God has a reason for it, and God is doing something through it, and God is accomplishing something for his own honor and for his own glory. He makes everything beautiful in his time. And then there's that moment when we step into his presence in heaven. We step into his presence in heaven and God makes it all clear. The things that we've been dealing with. Do you get what he's saying? It might not feel beautiful to you at this moment. It might not look beautiful to you at this moment. But in his time, he makes all things beautiful. And he makes it possible for us to understand, even if it means standing in his presence in eternity, to understand his purposes for our lives in all of the events of our lives. Some of you have been through some tremendously difficult experiences. And you probably are not going to know the answer to those reasons why in this life. But aren't you thankful there's a sovereign, providential God that oversees everything, and in his time, it'll be beautiful because you'll understand its purpose and you'll understand its plan. If you're willing to wait for his time. God, Job would say, God, you come down here. He did say, Job, God, you come down here. Job said this, God, you come down here. You explain yourself to me. You tell me why you did this. This is not fair. This is not right. I'm a righteous man. God, I'm expecting you to show up. You're on trial now, God. You tell me what you're doing. And you get to the end of the book of Job, and God says, in essence, you can't understand me but you can trust me. That's what Solomon is saying. He has made everything beautiful in its time. In its time, God will make everything clear and understandable. And let's just take a few things that we can understand. Aren't there things in your life that when you were going through them, you didn't understand them? You didn't even like them. But five years, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years down the road, you look back and you say, thank God. Thank God. I didn't understand it or see it at that moment, but thank God for it now. I was uh, thinking about this, and there was a girl that I, I liked when I was a teenager. Her name was Janice. She went to school. She was in the same school we were in, and she, she, her name was Janice. And I, I thought, man, that's the girl for me. That's the girl for me. What are you laughing at, honey? <laughs> she's saying, yeah, that was the girl for you. Yeah, that, yeah, that's what she's saying. 
<laughs> I, I went over to her, her house one, one Christmas, and I stood under the mistletoe. I just stood there. I didn't even get a kiss from the dog. <laughs> I look back across my life and I think to myself, you thought you knew so much. Thank God I didn't marry Janice. She's a beautiful lady, a wonderful lady. Thank God I didn't marry Janice. Thank God he gave me my wife. Janice would have put me out a long time ago. <laughs> you get what he's saying? And number five, and finally I finish. Are you with me? God is sovereign over all the times of our lives. The times of our lives are always subject to change. Through all the times of our lives, we should bring glory to God. The times of our lives reveal that eternity has been placed in our hearts. By the way, you ought to go to... Acts chapter 17, I think it's about verse 27, and the apostle Paul is preaching to the Athenians, and he's, he's come to Athens after having been run out of Thessalonica and out of Berea. He's down here in Athens. They're just trying to keep him safe, keep people from killing him, and he sees all the idols, and he's incensed by all of the idols, and he even sees one that says, to the unknown God, to the unknown God. And so he can't say, he can't be quiet any longer. He walks out, and he he begins to preach. Let me tell you who the unknown God is. And in the process of telling them who the unknown God is, he says that God has determined the boundaries and the borders of all people so that they might seek him, that they might grope after him, so that they might touch him. In other words, he was playing to this very thing that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Everybody knows they need God. They may replace him with a false god or an idol, but everybody knows they need a God. They need the God, the one true God. But finally, number five, the gift of God is to enjoy the good that is found during the times of our lives. The gift of God is to enjoy the good that is found during the times of our lives. Now notice what he says, verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. You can't understand all that God's doing. Number 12, verse 12, I know that nothing is better for me or for, for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. You hear what he says? Okay, there's going to be things that happen in life that are seasons. Some of those seasons will last a long time. Some of those seasons will change in the course of time. There's a time for all of these things, and God is in control of everything. He is sovereign and providential over it all. And through it all, we ought to be seeking God. We ought to be glorifying God. We ought to be honoring God. We ought to be showing our fear, our reverence, our awe for who God is. But then he says, let me tell you something practical. All around you are good things. Learn to enjoy those good things that God has given to you. He's filled this world with these good things for a reason. He wants us to go to a baseball game and to an amusement park. He wants us to spend time with our family. He wants us to take a vacation. He wants us to hike through a park. Well, some of you, he wants to hike through a park. He wants you to go fishing. He wants you to pursue a hobby. He wants you to relax in the pool. Do something you enjoy, he says, and thank God for the blessing of his provision to do it. If you've got a pool to relax in, say thank God and invite the preacher and his family. <laughs> if you've got a job, instead of complaining always about what you don't like, 
stop and say, thank God I've got a job that keeps a roof over my head and keeps food on my table and provides for my family and gives me a place to go every day so that I'm not worthless and useless, just wasting away. Thank God for it. On the other side of that, there's a lot of Christians that think you shouldn't enjoy anything. I got news for you. God gave us all things. First Timothy chapter 6, he gave us all things to, you know the next word? You know the next word? To enjoy. He gave us all things to enjoy. I want to finish with this. There's an author by the name of Jim McGuigan. He writes in a book called Lessons from Life. This is what he says. And this is where I have been. Probably where many of you are, because we've lived uh, under, we've lived, we've lived in so much legalism for so long. Some saints can't enjoy a meal because the world is starving, he says. They can't joyfully thank God for their clothing and shelter because the world is naked and homeless. They're afraid to enjoy an evening at home with their families because they feel like they ought to be out saving souls. They know nothing of balance. That's a key word in my life. They know nothing of balance, and they're miserable because of it. They think the gospel is good news until you obey it. And then, now listen, and then it becomes an endless guilt trip. I've fallen under that guilt trip. I've probably inflicted that guilt trip at times. But God wants you to enjoy the life he's given to you. He wants you to look around you and take time to recognize that there are incredibly wonderful things that are all over and all around you and to say, thank you, God. I, I was reading about I was reading about Ruth uh, Graham. She had over her kitchen sink a little sign. This is what it said. Divine service will be conducted here daily. I love that. Divine service will be conducted here daily. Three times a day, she goes to that sink to wash the dishes for all of her children. Where's Billy? He's on the other side of the world. She's got to make sure these kids are fed. And she looked at it and she said, thank God that what I get to do is divine service to God. Even if it's as mundane as washing dishes. Now, personally, I think Billy should have bought her a dishwasher. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. As mundane as washing the dishes, she found the joy in it. God wants you to enjoy the life he's given to you.